Welcome to Wine Back. Today we are having a conversation with Catherine Paylor Band, adaptive fashion designer, disabled entrepreneur, and Northern Power Woman on the Future List 2023. We are so happy to have Catherine here because we are going to discuss style, fashion, disability, and how to come back to work when your body is maybe not the same as before. We are going to have fun, have laughter, but especially we are going to discuss on how important it is to create adaptive fashion. And now Catherine is doing a massive work in creating a new narrative about creating a fashion style that really can adapt to different bodies. So thank you so much, Catherine. We are really happy to have you here. So I start with one question. What means I'm back for you? It means that despite whatever difficulties or disabilities have happened, it means that I am here as I was and that I've been able to get over those barriers and I may have part of my body that doesn't work anymore, but I am still cat and I'm here to cause a bit of disruption and a bit of mischief. Would you like to share in your story? Yes, certainly. So 15 years ago, I picked up my baby. He was only six months out of his playpen and I herniated a disc onto my spinal column and the surgery to repair that injury actually went wrong. And I ended up in hospital for nine months and I came out as a full-time wheelchair user. So literally, over, not even overnight, the click of the fingers. And I went from being a new mum to being still a new mum, but a disabled mum with all of the the complications and difficulties that disability brings while also trying to get my head around how to be a mum to this baby that needed me. You said that you stayed in hospital nine months. I was to come back to, let's say, some sort of normal life and come back to your work after this kind of experience. It was scary because what you don't realize is you become quite acclimatized to living in hospital. You become very regimented. So you know when the doctor's rounds are, you know when you're going to get fresh water, you know that you're going to press a button and you've got a nurse or you've got painkillers. So the idea to go home really scared me. I really had panic attacks at the fact that this support mechanism that I was now needing and needed for nine months, all of a sudden wasn't going to be there. And who was going to, who's going to be at my beck and call? What happens if something goes wrong when I'm at home? And it's really, it's hard to get your head around. So the hospital were really good in as much as, as, as I started to get a bit weller they would let me out for a couple of hours so I could get used to not being on a ward then they'd let me come out for the day then eventually they let me have like an overnight and they gradually built up my tolerance for being at home but it's still like 
such a shock to your system because you you're programmed to all the noises, the beep, the footsteps, like everything is. All of a sudden, you come home and your ears are ringing because there's no noise, and that's really hard to tune into all the new noises of your new environment. So yeah, it it was a a great transition because I could get home and be me and learn what this new life was. But at the same time, it was a really frightening transition because my network of support had gone pretty much overnight. And that was to come back to work. Very difficult. I tried at different points to come back. I did a bit of volunteering, but I always found that my health was never stable for long enough. So I know some people become disabled and it's literally a, a mechanical issue with their body and there's no complicating factors and and they can get on. But unfortunately, that didn't happen to me and I ended up with a lot of complicating factors. So since since my injury, I have been in and out of hospital every year. I probably spend about six months of the year in hospital broken up into periods and so trying to get into any routine with work was difficult I couldn't find a company who wanted to employ me because I didn't know how stable my health was going to be and there's always the question about how many sick days have you had and it's like well pretty much every day is a sick day now and and so it was really difficult to find where I fit in either my confidence because suddenly I was told I was disabled and I'd have to stay at home and be in bed and people don't believe you can do anything once you're disabled. So you're constantly, oh, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. And eventually you start believing that you can't do that because these are professionals telling you you can't, and so it must be right. And you, you sort of lose yourself. Well, I did anyway. I lost myself into trying to work out who this new person was. And was I always going to be sick? Was I always going to be bedbound? Like, that's not how I saw my future as being a new mum or being a, 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 having a career. So it, it, it's a lot of readjusting and, and getting your head around things. And a lot of prejudice and distrust about the disabled community and what their abilities are and what they're able to to offer. So you do yeah you, you get a, you seem to hit a lot of boundaries all the time. There's there's barriers to to trying to get back into work and trying to get into what you deem as a normal routine. You said something that is really resonating with me the distrust towards the disabled community at workplace. Would you like to explain more this concept of distrust and why it's so dangerous? Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's quite insidious because I don't think it's, well, in my case anyway, it wasn't an out-and-out out spoken, you're disabled now, I don't trust you. But there's just an air of or there's just odd comments that come out as comedy 
and oh well she'll not be able to do that or, or don't put that on her you know that's too much or or you get people now talking to you in silly childish accents because well I'm in a wheelchair so now I must be talked to like I'm three you know <laughs> Only my legs that don't work. I mean, nothing wrong with my brain or my communication skills. So I think it, personally, it it wasn't an out and out thing, but there is just this insidious undertone and an unspoken, well, she's disabled now. So you get those that don't want to bother you. They don't want to add to your trouble. They don't want to give you too much work then you'd be off sick for a week won't you <laughs> it's funny really and I'm I, I like to trust people so I'm sure they weren't doing it for the sake of being willful in upsetting you I'm sure they did have my best interests at heart and they didn't want to give me too much but I think language is so important when it comes to talking to disabled people and just talk to us like like we were, like we are adults, like you did before. Please don't belittle us with silly little... And if you don't know what to say, that's fine. Just don't say anything. It's when they come to make up things to try and come across as funny and friendly that they really put their foot in it and say the wrong thing. You also said every day is a sick day for me. Yeah. And so I'm wondering... How can you reconcile the fact that you are sick or you are not well with the idea of society to be productive, to be successful, to be... I think because I found what my new level of normal is and it it took a long time to work out what my base level of Okay, I'm sick and I need a lot of medication to get me going, but actually, this is my normal. This is how I feel every day. So let's take that as a, as the basis and work from there. So I'm always going to be fighting infection. I've got neuropathic pain. I'm always going to be in pain. I've now, I've, I've got a condition of spondylosis, so my neck is crumbling. I'm always going to have these complicating factors. I'm very much not a one that's like, woe is me. It's like, okay, my neck hurts, so let's put a scarf on. Or my neck hurts, so let's get a hot water bottle. Trying to self-care as much as possible. And I'm always pushing the boundary of what my base energy levels are because if I don't, I don't know what is possible. And sometimes it, it's a bit like a marathon runner. Actually, the barriers in your head, your barrier isn't in your body. So you might be able to push for a little bit more with your head going, ah, we can't do this. But actually your body's going, you know what? I did. And I feel great for doing it. And it, and it, it's no different to, to a normal person pushing their barriers. I guess it just, you do them unconsciously when you're younger, when you're coming into a career. Can I work 70 hours and, not, and go out all weekend? Can I push the envelope? 
when you're newly disabled, you have to learn that all over again and you have to work out how much you can push yourself before you're going to have a physiological effect. And at that point, stop. Listen to the people in your life who pick up on things before you do. So my husband, I, I give, I, I say to a lot of people, especially on Zoom now, my face, I'm rubbish, got a rubbish poker face. My face gives everything away, good or bad. So Zoom's a killer. But he can tell certain ways I hold myself, certain if I'm trying to push really hard, he'll know if I've reached my limit and he'll actually say, you know what, you need to stop now. So I've got that really great support in my life as well of people that I trust when they say that it's not because they want me to be kind to myself. It's because if I push too hard, I will break myself and then I won't be able to do whatever's tomorrow or, or next week. But this is happening, I think, not only to disabled people, but to everyone, especially right now. There is a lot of burnouts that are happening. And I think it's important to have a support system that is going to say to you, stop it. And, really? and right now, I don't think that companies are interested so much in saying stop it to employees. No, and I've I've noticed this a lot. So my husband, he's one of these who hasn't been furloughed. He hasn't had an easy lockdown. He is a data protection um, officer and GDPR um, specialist. So everyone went online and all of a sudden you've got all these data ethics things and he can't have a day off. So he has worked through all of lockdown. But what I found is businesses haven't flagged to people that, well, you know, instead of the hour commute at the morning and at the afternoon, you're signing on when normally you would leave the house. And you're not signing off your computer till normally at the end of the day. And you're not really getting off your computer for lunch. So, hey, guess what? We're getting three hours free from you. Oh, and add that in, there's 15 hours you're giving the company for free. Thanks very much. And it's like, hang on a minute, they're not paid. That's not looking after your staff. And now that it's gone on for two years, company's like, well, you've done it for two years. And it's like, that's, that's wrong. You are stealing from people either time or mental health or we used to have an hour's commute. That was when we were revving our brains up to start work. We used to go and make a coffee and have a chat in the coffee room. And that's where we're processing all of those meetings we've sat through. And then our hour's commute home was us just compartmentalizing everything. So when we walk in the door, we can have time with our families and not have to think about work. That just doesn't happen anymore. And I think that's what's adding to the burnout and, and people's expectations of, well, if that's what the company wants now, that's what I've got to do. I think we need to empower ourselves and our employees to go, you know what, that's not right. And I'm not doing that. And it's okay to say no, because 
someone at some point has got to say no. If you don't, you start losing really passionate people because they burn out. And not only have you lost them for a couple of weeks, they'll leave the industry altogether. And it's that's a cost that no one should have to be paid. I'm wondering about your own journey going inside the usual idea of going to the office, work for a corporation or something similar, and transition to build something for your son. <laughs> I'd sort of say it's a no-brainer, but actually <laughs> every day I look and I'm like, wow, what was I thinking? So the the difficulties I had was because my health wasn't stable enough and because at times I needed big surgeries, which could result in a six to 12-week recovery time. For the last five, six years, I've had one of those a year some years I've had two, especially if, so I can herniate a disc for candy now. I literally move wrong and it's gone. And there is no corporation or company who is prepared to say, you know what, you take three to six months off a year, do what you need to and come back. Even if the company did, your colleagues <laughs> wouldn't like you because they would see it not as a health thing, they just see it as a skive or a way of getting out of work. And that pressure was just too much. And I didn't want to be the girl that was always off sick. And that that wasn't who I was. I was off sick for genuine reasons, but people very quickly stopped believing that they're genuine reasons and just thinking you're on a bit of a skive. So the only way I could think about working around it was that I created a company that I was in charge of. And if for whatever reason I needed six or 12 weeks to recover, then that's what I did. And that's where Seated Sewing really came from was this idea that we could be fluid and flexible. I'm really rubbish sleeper. Anyone that knows me knows it's quite normal to get emails from me at crazy times. Um, and I have some colleagues in the adaptive fashion arena where we'll send voice me messages to each other at like three, four o'clock in the morning because all of a sudden we've had an idea and it's like, do it. So I don't tend to work nine or five or eight or four. My day is very much pieced. If I'm wanting to do a full day's work, I'll do a couple of hours, I'll have to stop, I'll, I'll either have to go do something else or I'll have to just lie down, I'll do a couple more. And so my day is very much snatched in an 18 to 20 hour period. And that works for me. I think it's been the best move I've ever made, actually, because I am my boss. If I need time off sick, I ask myself. I've set it up in such a way that if I need help, I've got people that can help me. I've got a seamstress that can come in and do sewing for me, especially if I'm recovering from surgery because I've I've had to learn the hard way that if I get back on my sewing machine too early, then actually my recovery is slower. So as frustrating as it is, I've had to say, yeah, I, I 
six weeks and I can't sit at my sewing machine okay. Being an entrepreneur, there is so much other things that you can be doing, especially in the world of social media and having a website. So there's always things to update. There's always things I can be doing. And I don't take my computer into hospital, but I do take my iPad and my phone. (laughs) So I have been known to be sending some emails from my hospital bed or just trying to keep things ticking up even if I'm not 100% running the business at the time. Why the idea of seated sewing? I've always sewn and I was on a sewing retreat and I'd, I'd always, since becoming disabled, I could never find clothes that fit. Being a wheelchair user, clothes you can't walk into a high street and just buy clothes off the rack. Because sitting all day, you're in a completely different position and clothes are designed and made to be stood in, to be walked in. And when you're sat, if you're wearing clothes that are designed to be stood in, all of a sudden you've got fabric in the wrong places. You haven't got enough fabric coming up your back. You've got too much fabric at your front. And sitting all day, that extra fabric starts to rub. You get sores, you get pressure areas, and it just doesn't work. So I had started, it's called pattern hacking. So it's where I would take a a pattern that I could buy on a high street, and then I would hack it and I'd make it fit my body. And so over the course of this weekend, I'd been showing the girls on the course, what I did and how I had to alter clothes. And I said it was something I was thinking about, but I wasn't too sure. Anyway, by the end of the weekend, I was sure and they had helped me come up with seated sewing. So it explains what the business is because it's sewing and the seated refers to the fact that I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, My logo is a wheelchair that has been made with a needle and thread. Yeah, it's really beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. And what do you think about the importance of adaptive fashion? It is vital. And I still cannot get my head around why it hasn't been picked up and run with by any of the luxury brands or the big brands. They... They say the reason is because their customers don't ask for it. Their customers don't ask for it because they don't know it's a thing and it's available. Um, it's, it really breaks my heart because if you can't dress in the clothes that really reflect who you are, especially being disabled, you have so many parts of it stripped away and that you sort of no longer own or you don't feel in charge with, like, especially when I find when I'm having seizures, I don't feel in charge of my body because my body is doing something really strange to me that I'm not in control of anymore. So fashion and shoes were the only things that I could really wear that really screamed, this is Catherine still the same. But what is really sad is there is so much talent in the disabled community If we don't have the clothes that we can wear to go for a job interview, how are we going to get a job? 
even if we have amazing talent and we've got to the job interview time, you turn up in your joggy bottoms and your comfy top because that's the only thing you've got to wear. Who's going to look at you and go, you know what, we'll overlook that because on paper he's really good. First impressions mean so much to people and we make snap judgments about people. And if they are not in clothes that are comfortable or they're not in clothes that fit, they're not going to feel empowered and brave enough to fill in the application form, to put themselves forward, to say, you know what, I really want to go to work. And it's just a basic rite of passage. Everybody should have clothes that fit their body right, that are comfortable to wear and make them feel good. And it's just, yeah, I, I just, I don't understand the disconnect. But I think, I think the disconnect is unless you have suffered or someone in your family has suffered from a disability, you're not going to understand what the barriers to dressing our, ourselves are. And that's why I'm passionate about shouting about it more because more people are affected. One in five people will become disabled in their life. A billion people are already disabled. So there's a billion people out there that need adaptive fashion or universal design. So we, one of my frustrations is we get lots of research, we get lots of papers about is adaptive fashion needed? Is it that necessary? We've had years of that. The proof is out there. A billion people in the world are just waiting for someone to go, you know what? Let's bring it on the high street or, or let's get a luxury brand to start using disabled models. Let the disabled people see themselves on television or in magazines. Because if we can see ourselves in TV and on magazines, we see ourselves in society. At the, the moment, that's all missing. And so that disability has become this taboo subject because no one dare talk about it because we don't see it regularly in our lives. We don't see the disabled community. They have no clothes to wear all the time. So how are we going to go out and show them what we can do? Yes, I remember when I came back to work after my injury, I wasn't able to find anything for me to wear yeah. because I had some issue in moving. And I, I, at the end, I chose something that were, was not aligned to who I am. Yeah. Made me really uncomfortable. I'm a shy person. And this had a big, big, big impact on my healing process yeah. because I wanted to hide and I needed to show up at work. Yes. And, and, and then something nice happened because some of my friends asked me where I found what I was wearing and they started to buy that because for them it was fancy. Okay, cool. <clears throat> And so I, I see, um, yes. and then I talked with my friends and they said to me, oh, but this is really comfortable, even with, for us, that we don't have any issue, but it's really 
comfortable for us to wear these kind of things. And still not logging. No. But sometimes we, I feel maybe I'm wrong, that the fashion industry is imposing things on us that are not comfortable or that are not speaking to ourselves, we think, oh, yeah. but we need to dress like that. I think, I don't actually, that's my impression. Yeah, they, they are stuck very much in the women are over six foot and they're all a size two. And it's like, I probably 1% of the world is that between five foot and five foot five, five foot six. And we're tens, twelves. We've got limbs missing. We sit all day. So there is such this, this mismatch between idealizing what we all want to look like. I dream to be six foot tall and a size zero. I mean, yeah, who wouldn't be? But that's only because that's the only thing you see in magazines. If we started to see people in wheelchairs or we started to see people with limbs missing, then suddenly the fashion industry would have to change and address that. And it is so, so slow on the pickup. It's so, like, I don't even, I can't even explain how disconnected it is from what their customers are looking for to what they are offering is just unbelievable. It really is. So what about if some of our listeners wants to know more about the opportunities around adaptive fashion? So by all means, drop me an email, get in touch. Most countries, if you look at adaptive fashion, so depending where you are in the world, I know Australia, America, UK, Italy has got some really good, strong links with adaptive fashion. If you're interested in getting involved with it, go to your fashion school and ask for adaptive fashion. Ask them to put on a course. It's Sadly, it's not part of the curriculum. And I, again, I think that is a massive miss because we've got all these really talented, passionate designers coming out of fashion school and they don't even know that adaptive fashion is a thing. So if it's an interest for you, ask about it. But I got into it out of necessity. I just started making clothes that were right for my body and it's sort of grown from there and now designed for people with missing limbs or people of small stature. So it has taken on a world of its own, but just go for it. Because the more, even if you haven't got sewing skills, you can champion the cause. You can bring it up in social media. You can ask the fashion houses that you buy from, when will you bring an adaptive range or how can you alter this to fit my body? Ask the hard questions, make them uncomfortable because it's only by keeping the pressure up and they will hear from the customers that they need an adaptive range. You are also an entrepreneur, I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it. <laughs> Let's say I see yes. 
what means for you to be a seal and what means for you to be a disabled seal? Um, I'm really proud of being a disabled CEO. Running a company is not easy, whether you are disabled or not. But having a disability certainly brings in a lot of challenges. But I actually think it also gives me qualities that your standard CEO won't have. So time management. I can be as agile as you want because I'm used to having curveballs in my life 24 hours a day. So if I need to pivot to change to either hit um, a style or a, an event, I can do that. That's, that's not difficult. Empathy is something. So when I'm dealing with customers or I'm dealing with others in the industry, because of what I've been through, I've got a broad understanding of challenges and, and empathy is something that I try to bring to every situation. And I don't take myself too seriously. Like there are deadlines and there's things that have to be done, but you know what? There's always tomorrow. So if for some reason something happens today, Unless it is a 100% deadline I have to hit, then that will be hit. But if it's something that I can put off to tomorrow because that means my health will be a little bit stronger or I'll have a bit of a cleaver head, then do that. The, the, I think it is, it's the agility of being able to just bend in the wind and go with the flow and it is what it is. Why do you think there is still a prejudice against disabled CEO? It still seems in some part of the corporation's world like a contradiction. Yes. I think part of it is because disabled is in the title because I think people don't like to talk about disability. They feel that if they do, they're going to open this can of worms and they're not going to have, they don't want to be given sympathy. Well, we don't want sympathy. We're not out for sympathy. I think they see it as a weakness rather than actually a strength. And I think, I think they're just... I think it highlights to people what actually can be done despite illness and that puts a spotlight on them and on their employees because suddenly you've got someone with all of these challenges actually being really productive and successful. Well, why aren't your guys doing the same without those challenges? And I think it makes people uncomfortable in as much as it, it makes them question how they manage and, and why are they allowing certain things in their company to keep happening when there isn't really a reason or an excuse for it to happen. So it shines a spotlight and it makes people think. And yeah, people don't like that. Do you have any upcoming projects that you want to share or you are proud of? We've got lots of projects coming up. 
So I'm working on one at the moment. I think we've titled it the September Project. And that is working with a colleague of mine called Isaac Harvey. And so we are designing a collection for London Fashion Week in September. Oh, wow. So that's the first time I've been on a runway. He's promised it's a one-time only big bang event. I suspect it won't be because I suspect he'll enjoy it and he wanted to do again next year. <laughs> but we, we've got some great collaborations coming up with other adaptive designers in the UK and projects in the often with a couple of clients out in Australia as well. So things are happening. Conversations are still happening. The power of Zoom is just amazing. So it's it's opened up the world to my living room, which is amazing. I love it. Do you have any advice on how to create the perfect outfit? Yeah, so find find clothing that you're comfortable with already. And if there's something you really love and it really fits well, either take that to a seamstress or if you are handy with with sewing, trace that out and just recreate it. Give yourself an extra bit of space so that you are comfortable and natural fibers. Always, always go for natural fibers. They're breathable, especially if you're sat all day, you're not going to get hot and uncomfortable and you're not it's not going to rub. And so always go for natural, breathable fabric. And have fun with it. Express yourself. Yeah, I think it could be a journey of discovery and fun. Definitely. Any advice on the importance of colors? Oh well, you see, I'm not what I'm not the best one to talk to about colors because I just wear whatever color I like. I don't do the whole skin tone, color, eye color. If I like the color and it's bold and bright. I'll be wearing it. There is a whole, a whole department's the wrong word, industry in getting the colour right. But if it's something that sings to you, be brave enough. If it's something that represents who you are, be brave enough to wear it. But say, if you're happy in not shouting about yourself, that's okay too. If you want to wear darks and navies and blacks and you're comfortable in that then that's great because that's who you are you will express yourself in other parts of your life you might have really funky shoes or you might wear really bright nail varnish just make sure that you're comfortable in what you wear whether that's brights or darks but yeah you're, you'll always try freaking bright <laughs> it's like hello any last advice that, or insight that you want to give to our listeners? Trust yourself. You know yourself the best. You know how you're feeling. You know your tolerances. And if it doesn't feel right, so going back to work or interacting with colleagues, then speak up and say something about it. Because they... What I've found since becoming disabled is a lot of my time is actually spent 
educating others about disability. And I think those that are in the workforce have got to take a little bit of ownership and say, okay, we are here, we're present, so we're going to do some educating. Because it's only by educating corporations about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable and what are the expectations that things are going to change. And when you have a lived experience, you are the expert. So you tell it, you tell your story and you tell them what works for you and what doesn't. And you are the expert. No, no one can come with a textbook and say, ah, but you know what? It says after three months, you should feel X, Y, and Z, or you should need X, Y, and Z. Everybody's different. Everyone's experience is different. And all you can do is tell your story and give your needs while also champion, championing the, the community as a whole. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me. Over the moon, you've got your podcast going. I'm so, so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine, for this conversation. And if you are listening to this and you find it useful, please feel free to share it with friends. See you next time.